This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Comprehending the Climate Crisis, Everything You Need to Know About Global Warming and How to Stop It. And the author is Dr. Bradley J. Dibble, and Dr. Dibble joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Dibble. Hi, how are you, Steve? Well, great to have you with us. This certainly is a very controversial subject, the climate crisis. Uh, Let me read what you have written. You take a very solid stance. You say this, comprehending the climate crisis is a valuable source for anyone wanting to learn about the important problem our planet is facing and what we need to do about it. It provides one-stop shopping covering all the issues pertaining to global warming and is easy to read for everyone. Readers will learn about the science, the problems created by greenhouse gas emissions, and the solutions available. I guess the key here is it's easy to read. It's for all of us because this can kind of uh, be quite overwhelming to uh, most of us, so, you know, the average American and the average, uh, I guess, uh, dweller uh, upon the planet Earth, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's been one of the issues. Um, when I started to get into this issue a number of years ago, uh, really just for personal reasons, I was interested in the, the science behind it and wanted to make sure I understood it. And I've probably read about 50 books on the topic since then, but I found that most of them were either um, too simple uh, without covering all of the bases or were really just preachy about saying, here's what you need to do without really explaining why. And any of the books that did explain were almost exhaustive, usually written by climate scientists. And so they were were very heavy in the science and they were very long. And I think the average person who wanted to start learning about this would have been intimidated by those books on the shelves and wouldn't have, have picked them up. So... Uh, eventually the book I wrote was the one I wish I could have read first when I wanted to start learning about this because it covers it all without getting too bogged down, without being too lengthy. Now, you're a cardiologist. Uh, what's the motivation here? Um, well, it's an interesting uh, question. Um, I think first and foremost, I would just say it's because I'm an interested citizen of this planet and I want to do what I can do to try to help. And I think this is one thing I thought I could tackle about it. But but I think that it's more to it than that. Um, as a cardiologist, I give a lot of education to the public through seminars and through interviews, and uh, I think I'm pretty reasonable about taking some of the complicated issues that we deal with in medicine and explaining them simply enough so that the average person can understand them. So I thought, well, if I'm a half reasonable at that, maybe I can apply that to this issue. And then I think also as a physician, I think our duty is to care for not just those who step foot in our offices, but for everyone. You know, there's a lot of physicians who've gotten on board about things like smoking bans or wearing helmets. And and those are things where those aren't their their own patients, but they're trying to help society at large. And I think that 
this issue of global warming is now so important to me now that I'm, I'm so much better educated on it, I thought I've just got to do what I can to help. The, the first people who are going to be affected by uh, global warming with respect to health issues are patients with cardiac and pulmonary problems, and I see those sorts of patients. So, well, yeah, I, I think there's a good tie-in to me as a physician, but you're right, I'm not a climate scientist. I think maybe that's one advantage about this book because those books tend to be, as I said, a little too exhaustive in the material. Now, your book is broken down into three sections. You have one titled The Background and then another one called The Problem, and then the third section, The Solution. So let's kind of give a little overview maybe of each section. Uh, obviously, we don't have time to go into details, but give us a little bit on The Background. Well, yeah, that was when I started to ask questions about things like, um, you know, I'd heard that uh, of the fossil fuels, carbon was worse and natural gas was cleanest. And I wanted to understand why that was. And I kind of under, wanted to understand what are fossil fuels? Uh, you know, are they just dead dinosaurs? And, and so I kind of had to go back into that information. And really, it, it had to go right back to the beginning. So I take this reader, uh, assuming they know nothing about about the science involved or even about science principles like physics or chemistry, but I take them through what carbon is, why it's on our planet, how it got to the different spots it is on our planet, how it moves around on our planet, and, and what has been happening since Earth formed four and a half billion years ago. And then that's, that background gives them enough examples that when we start to deal with a little bit more of the say, the science of combustion of those fossil fuels in the problem section, they've already got a little bit of the background about um, some of the equation, you know, scientific reactions, how something oxidizes. They've already gone through that in that background. So I, I kind of, I sneak that in there. I sneak the science in there when I'm explaining about um, just what, the, what carbon has been doing on our planet for most of our planet's history until the Industrial Revolution hit, and we started to change things. In the next section, the problem, I start addressing, okay, here's, here's what we've been doing now for the last few hundred years. We've been burning these fossil fuels. We've been generating a lot of emissions. Um, understandably, that was what has really transformed our, our world into the technological marvel it is today. But as a result, we've been um, altering the climate, uh, as, as hard as that is to believe for some people, the scientific facts behind it are really unequivocal. And that's why almost every scientist on the planet agrees that this is real. This isn't something that is um, as controversial as, as perhaps other things like should we take a democratic or a republican approach to um, solving the economy. Um, and so what, what we end up what I end up covering in the section about the problem itself is making sure people are up to, to scratch on all of the facts. Um, what happens when we burn fossil fuels? Do we have evidence that the uh, carbon dioxide levels have been increasing? Do we have evidence about uh, that temperatures have been increasing? Do we have evidence that the ice caps are melting? and all of those sorts of things. And I even extend it a little bit further into what other problems we will face, not just the ones we're facing today, but in the future. And then in section three, I deal with the solutions. And I take it in a very straightforward approach. I have um, a chapter on what we can do as individuals, as families, things we can do right in our own home, 
from cost savings to, to things that might cost us more, but at least we're doing the right thing. And then I have a chapter on what uh, society can do, what business and government can do, and I also have a chapter on the hurdles. So that if somebody becomes a real believer in this issue that we have to make changes, the last chapter, chapter 8, it addresses why uh, it's been frustrating that things haven't moved forward, but how human nature is such that it, it's not going to change overnight. We're slow in this process of accepting issues and changing for the greater good if it means a little bit of a um, taking a sacrifice in the present. That's where I refer to this issue of sustainable development. Sustainable development means we have to do what's right both for today and for the future and balance it out. You say that it doesn't take a lot of effort for families to dramatically reduce their carbon footprints. In fact, you claim that your family lives, quote, carbon neutral with a net emissions count of zero. Now explain that. Um, yeah, I we do, and uh, there's all obviously there's lots of things that I think are relatively common sense, like turning off the lights when you leave a room and when you um, it, trying to walk or bike rather than drive. And there's all those little things, but that still isn't going to get you carbon neutral. In the book, I go through all sorts of different things that are available to people, and what we have done in our family when we again. Uh, took this problem seriously. We explored everything. We had people over who would tell us what was involved if we were going to get solar panels. We had people over who were going to tell us what was involved if we did geo-exchange, which is what a lot of people call geothermal, but trying to get the heat from the ground. And um, all of them were obviously very pricey to explore. And what we ended up deciding to do is go with something that's available in uh, almost every province in Canada, I think, except one, called Bullfrog, and I refer to it. And I would anticipate that there are companies in the U.S. that are doing this too. But what Bullfrog does is it can supply you green electricity and green natural gas. So essentially, when you're purchasing from them, you're drawing from the regular grid, both in electricity and in natural gas, but everything you uh, draw from is immediately replaced by uh, electricity that's completely generated in green ways and also the natural gas is generated in green ways so that we're not really adding to the grid in that regard. So we still pay our normal utility companies like everybody else, but we pay an extra fee to Bullfrog for this uh, green electricity. So that's the main way because electricity is huge. Um, and, uh, and if you use natural gas in your homes, again, although it's better than carbon, it still uh, generates emissions. So that's how we dealt with that part of it. With respect to our fuel consumption for our vehicles, we purchase carbon offsets. Um, so again, this is where we pay to a company. We know how much fuel we consume in the average month, and we pay a company so that the amount of carbon dioxide we generate from that process is offset by things like um, planting trees. And often those are um, in totally different continents, far away from where we live, but because it's a global problem, that's okay. And likewise, when we travel, we can purchase carbon offsets for those trips so that when we are flying on vacation, say down south in the middle of the winter, um, we can purchase that so that we're not generating emissions from that either. Now, all of those solutions, as you can appreciate, uh, are costly, um, and so that's not necessarily something everybody can do, but that's what we've managed to do because we take it seriously. And every purchase we make now is as energy efficient as possible. The last car we got was a hybrid. 
it ended up costing probably about $20,000 more than if we didn't get the hybrid version. But again, we wanted to make sure that our fuel consumption was as efficient as possible. So I do think we put our money where our mouth is in this family about the issue. I'd like to ask you a two-part question. What makes you most optimistic that we can solve this problem? And then, of course, what makes you the least optimistic? Uh, That's a really good question. I think that I'm most optimistic because uh, we have seen the nations of the world come together previously, tackle an environmental issue, and be successful about it. And that's in 1987, the Montreal Protocol that attacked CFCs. Remember, that was in all the stuff like in Freon and uh, in aerosol cans. And this, these were the things that were destroying the ozone layer mm-hmm. when we developed a large ozone right. hole. And that was, uh, that was an economic decision that was going to hurt uh, some groups, some companies, but uh, the nations of the world recognized it was... It was something that needed to be done. The ozone layer is very important to protect us from UV radiation, and so um, they did it. And although it took some time to see the changes, we are now seeing, a few decades later, we're seeing the ozone layer improving and moving in the right direction. So that makes me optimistic, because if it could have been done once, it could be done again. I think uh, as part of that, though, this is where my, my pessimism comes, too, because that was something that involved billions of dollars. And this is something that's going to involve many trillions of dollars because our global economy is so wrapped up in fossil fuels. You know, it's the backbone of the economy. And I think it explains a lot of things about why, uh, why things happen in the Middle East the way they do, because that's where a lot of the oil is. And, um, and unfortunately it's, uh, we're so entrenched in it that it's going to be really hard to veer from that path when it's going to cost everybody more to do so. I I do, deep down, I think that um, all of the renewable energy sources like wind and solar uh, and geothermal, I think they can be great for the economy. They can generate jobs. And when you develop technologies, that always is is, uh, a great thing for an economy. But I, I guess maybe until push comes to shove where we're forced to, either because we've run out of oil um, or because the problem has become so severe with global warming that we have no choice. I'm I'm worried that the nations of the world are going to say, well, wait a second though. I mean, this is, this is easy for us. It's, it's good for our economy. For example, here in Canada, we have a lot of oil out in the um, Alberta, the Athabasca oil sands or tar sands. It's all in a form of bitumen, uh, but it's something that can be uh, brought out from the ground. It's mined, and then it's cleaned up, and um, there's the the, the Keystone pipeline that uh, was going to transfer a lot of it down into the States, and uh, and then there's been concerns that maybe the U.S. isn't going to be so forthcoming in taking it, and Canada says, well, we'll just send it to China. But, you know, the problem for us in Canada is it's generating a lot of jobs to do that. And so if people might say, well, we can't do that, it's dirty oil, it's bad for the environment, uh, but then if your job depends on it or if your country's economy depends on it, it's hard to say no no to that. So, so it's going to be tough. And I think the other part of the problem, what we've seen within things like the recent Copenhagen Accord is a lot of countries say, well, why should we take the big hit? I mean, other countries are still doing this. Why, why shouldn't they be the first ones? And so it kind of nobody wants to, to be the one to first stick their neck out. 
until all the countries come together, it's it's going to be tough, and that's not easy. I mean, it happened in '87 with the Montreal thing with CFCs, but it's I don't know that I'm pessimistic that this is going to be a really tough thing for the world to come together on. A final uh, comment from you. We have about a minute. I just want to read a statement, and if you would comment on this. Uh, The statement is, we have a responsibility to future generations to solve this problem before it's too late. Um, Absolutely. I envision a few generations from now and people looking back and saying, you guys knew what you needed to do, uh, and yet you didn't do it, and you've left us with this planet that's uh, in real trouble. What the heck were you thinking? I I think we do have um, that responsibility. Every generation has pretty much left the planet better than it was when they first took charge of it. And I'm worried that maybe our generation is going to be the first one to not have that situation for our children and our grandchildren. It's our responsibility to make it a better place. The title of the book, Comprehending the Climate Crisis. Everything you need to know about global warming and how to stop it. And the author is Dr. Bradley J. Dibble. Dr. Dibble, tell us how to get your book. Um, well, it's uh, certainly available on iUniverse.com in their bookstore. It's uh, also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. And uh, in, for Canadians, uh, we have it on uh, Chapters.ca online, and it is in some bookstores in Ontario as well. So, all of those places online is the easiest way to get it. Though. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back. 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Restoring Power to Parents and Places. And the author is Richard S. Cordish. And Richard joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Rich. Hi, Steve. Restoring power uh, to parents and places, that is so needed today, and you're going to get into the reasons why with us. Uh, first of all, though, I'd like to read what you've written about your book, just to kind of give an overall view for everyone. This book shows how to conduct community development so that it empowers families to be more productive through the expansion of their own enterprises, through sustainable practices at home, by growing food, through co-teaching their children and in collaboration with schools and through creative uses of their own habitats. It also details historically how the family's productive capacities became threatened and why that is a problem for children, communities, and society. Well, very comprehensive uh, approach. And your background, Rich, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and also why you felt a need, um, why you were motivated to write this book. Okay. Well, I, uh, I've been in the, in the community development field for over, over 30 years. I went right in to working as a community organizer after, uh, uh, graduate school and, um, but I went into the field because I really liked the idea of of going into a neighborhood or going into a a town or going into a region and and helping the people there, you know, plan uh, how to make their places work better, whether it's improving education or economic development or making places safe safer. And um, when I started the work in the, ni- in the 1970s. Um, I kind of assumed, and, and rightly so back then, I believe, families would be central and part of the process. And so I was doing neighborhood organizing in different places um, around Chicago, and then I moved to Pennsylvania and worked there. Um, but over time, in my work in this field, uh, and I've also taught this work, how to do this in universities, and I've written about it, um, over time, the, the whole process of community development has change in that it's become more about what really organizing the formal systems like like the education system or health care agencies or social service agencies or or um, uh, formal business development you know organizations and 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 less about uh, the families as 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 you might say productive players in the creation of the community and uh, and I think that's happened because over over the over over time, um, the expansion of these other formal systems, such as schools and school, comprehensive schools and and agencies, and has kind of um, displaced families, mothers and fathers from the productive roles that they need. Really, the community needs them to be playing, and that their children need to be, them to be playing. So I wrote the book uh, after, uh, and also, of course, I'm a father of four children, and I've been raising kids, my own kids, since 1987 with my wife, Maureen, and um, so I saw this through the sort of a father's angle as well, and um, really feel like our the field needs to be kind of confronted with this importance of the productive family and um, 
uh, engaged in some debate and conversation about what happened there and, and why are families not present as they had been in, in, as producers of not just in an economic sense, but also of food or of education or of safety or other things that a community needs. And then how do we um, think, start to think about community development as a process that can rebuild those capacities in ways that make sense today? So the family basically is that foundation for the, uh, that foundational unit, that basic unit of that neighborhood and how goes the family? That's how the neighborhood goes in the community, in the state, in the nation. I agree with that's right. And, and, um, that, that on the one hand is, is a statement that lots of folks will, of course, agree with. On the other hand, in a reality in the, in the community development field, um, you often find that the real practice of community development involves mostly uh, people working in their formal positions and their agencies and schools and, and, and other kinds of uh, capacities and families aren't there uh, or they might be spoken of as clients or consumers um, but not as not as co-producers of what the community needs needs to be uh, generating for the for the community to work well. One of your chapters is titled Creating Productive Roles for Mothers and Fathers. How does power matter? Yeah. Yeah, well, the power is uh, real central to this whole book. And I, um, you know, power can be a, uh, in some ways, uh, kind of a difficult concept for folks to, to, to grapple with. But, but I define power in there and I, and I draw on some research, um, from a writer, uh, uh, philosopher, Stephen Lukes. And um, basically power, the way I look at it is um, one, when, when one entity has, the entity being an organization or an individual, has the uh, ability to get another entity to behave uh, differently. And uh, sometimes power can be exercised effectively so that um, uh, people are being moved to behave or to uh, realize their goals uh, in a positive sense, but also power can be used to diminish the roles, uh, in, in this case, in the case of the book, of parents, um, so that, um, say, the, a father's role as teacher might be diminished by the expansion of formal education in schools, or um, the family's role as food producer might be uh, might be narrowed by uh, or displaced by the expansion of uh, large, large agriculture and and um, and um, uh, the food distribution system, uh, or the family's role in um, even being able to start take care of themselves economically by having their own business might be uh, displaced or narrowed uh, by. The, by the way homes are built or by the way uh, um, capital isn't made available uh, for uh, for small family enterprises. So over time, that power that came from the expansion of the, of the formal systems kind of compressed, and I, the term I use, thinned the role of, of mothers and fathers to where uh, the roles are... are are narrower and they're doing fewer things in a productive sense than they used to be, uh, almost to this, and I think many feel almost like the role has become um, 
so difficult to to take on that uh, that people opt out sometimes. What is family generated community building? Well, that is doing community. That is the that is taking in the community development process. Uh, which uh, is a participatory process in a neighborhood or a town or a village or a, or a region. Uh, and taking that process and building consideration of, of the productive uh, potentials and assets and also needs and limitations of families um, in, in the planning process. And it's a process that enables families to use their homes and their habitat and their land more productively for business purposes, for food production, or for other maybe uh, even um, homeschooling or co-schooling. Um, it involves helping families um, from that base of being more productive also get involved in, in local decision-making and politics or planning so that their voices are heard when decisions about land use or or education are are on the table in the local uh, in the local community so it's partly about uh, helping families become the become producers uh, effectively but also the drawing on all the benefits from that that the community gains uh, from families being uh, engaged and, and and powerful enough to uh, to have real voices in how the how the community is shaped tell us about co-schooling you know I had some experience with that myself the idea is there um, with co-schooling is that um, it's not necessarily pure homeschooling in which the uh, parents are um, are doing all the teaching of kids at home but um, co-schooling is a, a partnership between a family and a school in which a family uh, mom or dad or the mom and mom and dad together uh, um, will Take up some of the some of the formal teaching that that goes on in in the district. So, my, my wife and I did this when my two of my sons who were really having a hard time in the in the middle school uh, some years ago. We negotiated with the school when they were in seventh grade to um, have them come home, and we uh, we taught them. My wife and I taught our twin sons. Um, all their formal classes at home. Uh, so we, we bought a curriculum from a homeschooling company, uh, first rate, you know, good quality uh, material. We taught them history and literature and uh, math and the science. And then um, when they, but then we didn't want them, our sons to be, uh, you know, cut off from the school or from the kids in the neighborhood and everything. So they, they would go to the school for their art and, um, music and physical education and we would we had uh, kind of team meetings with some of the staff there occasionally about how the teaching was going and uh, they were comfortable with the materials we were using that they were you know um, good enough quality educational materials and then um, and then the school allowed uh, our, my sons to to walk so we did that in seventh and eighth grade and they allowed my sons to walk in, in the graduation ceremony at the school uh, when uh, when their class was ready to graduate. So co-schooling is, and it, that's just one example, co-schooling really is is much more possible, I think, than people might realize. Uh, 
given how many good homeschoolers out there, how many good homeschooling materials are out there, you know, co-schooling is is an arrangement where where the parents do some of the some of the schooling, uh, and uh, and the school does uh, does does other aspects of the schooling together to work out this um, this kind of partnership. Well, and really. Uh, hoping to ensure the greatest product of a family, uh, the children. And, you know, eventually they're going to hopefully be productive uh, members of society. Right. Yeah. And uh, so whatever it takes. Absolutely. I mean, that's in the end, that's that's why that's what we're supposed to be doing here. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, and you're pointing that out very emphatically and uh, helping us catch a greater vision of this. Now, how could a poor community in a inner city use family enterprises to make its neighborhood safer and more economically vital? Yeah, well, there are um, uh, fortunately now the which is different from when I first entered the field there. There are a lot of um, say, community development corporations and, and other kinds of even units at, like, community colleges that are pretty good at training um, people in starting how to start enterprises. And, and um, there's a lot of land in inner-city communities. Uh, there's a lot of space, even sometimes buildings, that are not being used, used at all. And... Um, and there's a lot of enterprising energy in, in, uh, in inner, inner city communities, and um, and so there there are assets there, and there are people who want to sort of get more control of their lives, and 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 there's a lot of interest in small family enterprises. I had some experience when I was working in state government for a little while, where we funded a an entity called the Family Enterprise Institute in a, in a uh, inner city community in Chicago, and. Um, I mean, the 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 product program was over enrolled uh, almost immediately because of all the interest. So, uh, and people uh, might start cafes. They might uh, form a. Uh, they might produce food that they might uh, consume for themselves, but also put some on the market uh, to sell through the local farmers market. Uh, there's all kinds of. There's an explosion of the kinds of businesses that can be run from homes now. Uh, there's a lot of literature out there on how to do that, and you don't need advanced college degrees to do a lot of those kinds of business to set up those kinds of businesses. So there's a lot of energy there in the inner city community for for this, and uh, and also some assets kind of laying around because of the community has not been uh, uh, invested in for some time. Uh, uh, another project I'm involved with right now is is one where um, it's called Sweet Beginnings, and it's an inner city program in Chicago. And uh, there they use vacant land to um, uh, to run an apiary and grow honey, and uh, mm. and then people are involved in um, mm. business. It's actually an LLC, a limited liability company, Sweet Beginnings LLC. They make um, personal care products from the honey, very good quality ones, and gotten. Consultation from how to set up a, you know, how to do this well from really good companies. For instance, Boeing has been involved in this, uh, and the city of Chicago has been investing in this. So um, there you have just land that uh, produce was used has been used to produce honey, and then uh, the honey has been used to produce good quality personal care products that are that are that are sold in a competitive way with uh, other you know products out there on the market. Rich, give us a closing thought. Okay. Well, 
what all this is really, Steve, what, what all this is really about is, is the productive family. Uh, the, the, the community needs to function well. The community and the kids in the community just need families to be lifted up and supported as producers or co-producers of everything really that, that the community needs to, uh, to work well. And that is, that is teaching kids good behavioral principles. Um, and it includes making community safe. It includes helping the citizenship develop and also, uh, of course, helping the, the community's own economic vitality uh, remain sustainable. Um, so, you know, at the bottom, it, the, the productive family needs to be focused on, lifted up, not forgotten, and really looked at very seriously by the by the professionals in community development, but also anyone else in the in the political arena or just in the in, in local uh, towns and villages. Anyone interested in families, we really need to be kind of locked in and concerned about rebuilding the capacities of families to be producers. The title of the book, Restoring Power to Parents and Places, and the author is Richard S. Cordish. And Rich, tell us how to get your book. You, uh, it's available online through um, iUniverse. Uh, my own website um, can provide you a link to it, richardcordish.com. Uh, it's also available through other online retailers, such as Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Thank you for being with us, Rich. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Getting Things Done in Washington, Lessons for Progressives from Landmark Legislation. And the author is Dr. Joseph H. Boyette. And Dr. Boyette joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Boyette. Hello, Steve. Good morning. Well, good to have you with us. Uh, You're going to give us uh, quite a lesson here about progressive thinking and progressive accomplishments, and we'll get into those details, but I'd like to read just a couple of things you've written just to set the stage for our discussion. You say this, 90% of Americans in recent surveys disapprove of how Congress is doing its job. Some people have gotten so angry with the seeming inability of politicians to get anything of substance done in Washington that they have taken to the streets to protest. Well, there's a new book out that says we can get things done in Washington. We just have to know how, and the author has the answers. Uh, The book is aptly titled Getting Things Done in Washington, and you're a longtime author. Uh, You've written 16 other books, and you're a political commentator, Dr. Boyette. You've written uh, highlighting some of your books, Won't Get Fooled Again, A Voter's Guide to Seeing Through the Lies. You've also written Getting Past the Propaganda, and uh, Choosing the Best Leaders, you've got a book, Workplace 2000, The Revolution Reshaping American Business, and then you've done a a series, a five-volume series called Guru Guide. So you certainly have some uh, passionate ideas and passionate beliefs. Tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book, Getting Things Done in Washington. Okay. Uh, well, um, my background is I have a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Georgia. I taught American government there. Uh, and uh, then I spent some years working in the public sector, working for, for with state and local governments, with the uh, National Association of Attorneys General, with the Social Security Administration in Washington, uh, with the Office of Civil Rights for the Department of Education, in advising uh, senior executives on leadership and management and policy uh, implementation there. Uh, and then I sort of switched careers and spent uh, uh, a decade or more uh, in the private sector working, uh, consulting with Fortune 500 companies uh, uh, on leadership and management practices. And, uh, and then, as, I, as, as you said, I've written a number of books, all dealing with politics or leadership um, practices. Uh, I'm a liberal, progressive Democrat. Uh, I voted for uh, uh, supporting Hillary Clinton in 2008 when she was running, and, and when Barack Obama was uh, nominated by the Democrats, I supported him for president. Uh, I was, like many progressives, enthusiastic about what we could get done in Washington with uh, the Democrats in control of the House and the Senate and the, and the White House. Uh, and then, as many progressives were and many Americans were, I was frustrated with, with the conflict and the inability, seeming inability to to uh, to get things done. Uh, and uh, although significant things were passed, uh, the stimulus package, uh, uh, the health care reform, and so on, uh, I felt that uh, the... Uh, uh, the, the, it didn't go as far as I wanted it to go. It didn't achieve the kinds of things I wanted it to achieve. 
uh, and so I was really just frustrated, like many Americans, with the the, the gridlock uh, in Washington. So, as I normally do when I'm frustrated, I I began to do some research. Uh, I began to collect the books, all the books and articles I could find about gridlock, what its causes were, uh, what we could do about it. Uh, and there are a number of good books out there, uh, that, and, and books that have proposed remedies uh, for, for changing the rules in the Senate, for example, to limit filibusters and to do other things. But I felt that you know, all of these remedies would either require uh, constitutional amendments, I would require Congress to actually take, take action to, to change things, which was not likely to occur uh, anytime soon. And so I said, you know, we've got to find a way to deal with the government and the Congress that we have. And I, I knew that we had passed major legislation in the past. Uh, had gotten done. Our parents, uh, grandparents, our great-grandparents, had gotten major change, had gotten things done in Washington, and so I decided I'm going to take a different tack. I'm going to look at this from the standpoint of what we've accomplished in the past, how we accomplished those things in the past, uh, and what lessons we could learn uh, from the accomplishment. And so I identified six major pieces of legislation that really uh, uh, altered things for all Americans, and I uh, uh, decided to, to look into why that legislation was proposed, what the conditions were that led to uh, the passage of the legislation, who was involved, uh, what the legislation did for the country, and what the story was. And there's some fascinating, really fascinating stories, the heroes, the villains uh, uh, in, in each situation. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there are key lessons that we can learn from each of those uh, uh, six, uh, six pieces of legislation that were passed. And you start with James Madison and the Founding Fathers, their struggle to expand the power of the federal government. That's right, that's right. Uh, the, that, that, of all of the legislation, legislative accomplishments in the history of the country, that was probably, is probably the major one. And James Madison is a, is a really a fascinating character. He's the architect of the Constitution, uh, a very unlikely candidate uh, for the role he played in the history of the country. He was a, a shy, a per- very shy. He was very bookish. He was a very scholarly kind of person. A uh, small man. He was only about, uh, I think, about five foot four. He only weighed about a hundred pounds. Throughout his life, he uh, was very sickly and feeble. We, we don't really know what his problem was, if he had a problem, uh, you know. Uh, but he felt it, that he was not going to live very long. Uh, he uh, would tell people that he, uh, that he, that he didn't expect to have a long life. He actually lived to be. Uh, in his mid-80s. Uh, he was so uh, feeble that uh, his, his good friend Thomas Jefferson would try to get him to go to, to Europe, uh, and Madison would say that he could not uh, endure a long voyage. Uh, but he, he really became the, the most knowledgeable person about the Constitution, and you know, whether you like the form of government we have today or you dislike it, uh, uh, you can either place the credit or blame on Madison because he was the one that played the key role. Uh, he was, uh, in 1786, uh, the summer before the, the Constitutional Convention, um, he, uh, he, he locked himself in his home. 
and uh, in his study and uh, uh, engaged in what one writer called the greatest one-man skull session in the, in the history of the country, in which he poured over books and everything he could get. And uh, Thomas Jefferson was, was sending this stuff to him uh, about every form of government in the past. He became really the most knowledgeable person about the various uh, what worked and what didn't work uh, in history in terms of forms of government. Uh, Confederate forms of government, uh, and uh, Help was was the major architect, as I said, of the Constitution and the Virginia Plan uh, that led to uh, the new Constitution. So it's a fascinating story, and I think one of the moments that's more fast—it's really fascinating—is uh, during the Virginia Ratification Convention. Um, Madison was pitted against uh, uh, Patrick Henry, who was possibly the the greatest orator of his time in the country. Uh, uh, Patrick Henry, tall, um, uh, very, uh, very loud, uh, uh, a great orator, pitted against Madison, the small, uh, feeble. Uh, Madison spoke in a squeaky little voice that people had to strain to hear. And the story of their exchanges in the Virginia ratification divisions is, is a fascinating piece in which uh, the little scholar uh, took on the great orator and, and, and won the day uh, with his sheer logic, with his command of the subject matter, with his command of the Constitution. And the Virginia ratifying the Constitution was key to the Constitution being ratified itself. So, so that's a really, a, a, I think, a fascinating uh, story, and that's where I began. You begin the struggle for the Constitution, that's the chapter title, and then you have the struggle for pure food and drugs, the struggle for health insurance, the struggle for the right of labor to organize, the struggle to reign in big business, and the last uh, chapter on uh, these examples, the struggle for civil rights, and you're focused in on Lyndon Johnson. Yes, uh, that, that's another fascinating uh, story. In this case, it's the it's the relationship between Lyndon Johnson, and this is before he became president, when he was majority leader of the Senate, and Richard Russell, who was the senior senator from from Georgia. And uh, I'm telling the story. Uh, most people, when they talk about civil rights, think of the 1964 Civil Rights Act or the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, but the story I tell is of the 1957 Civil Rights Act that most people don't even know exists. Its significance is that it was the first piece of civil rights legislation passed in more than 80 years. And the interesting thing about the passage of that act is that uh, it actually came about as a result of two uh, the collaboration between two uh, Southern senators, Leonard Johnson from Texas, and Richard B. Russell from uh, Georgia. And uh, the, uh, the story of, of why uh, Johnson uh, and Russell, who had both uh, worked to, uh, to, to kill any kind of civil rights legislation that was been proposed, Russell had been uh, the leader of the Southern Bloc in uh, blocking uh, uh, any civil rights legislation uh, in the past. They switched sides, and actually in one year switched sides uh, from being opposed to civil rights legislation to actually uh, helping to bring it about, uh, the first, the 1957 Civil Rights Act. And so I, that's a very, a very interesting tale. 
uh, of why they did that, and it has to do with their aspirations, Johnson's aspiration to to run for the presidency. It has to do with the migration of blacks from the South to the North and Midwest that made them a uh, a, a growing voting block uh, that. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans who wanted to run for the president realized uh, that the, the black voting bloc in the North and, and Midwestern states, uh, in states like Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, and so on, would, uh, would be a key uh, pivotal uh, factor in, in winning the electoral votes of those states. And the fact that um, Russell, that Johnson had, um, had basically courted Russell as a uh, as a mentor, and Russell was his mentor. Uh, it was sort of like a father-son relationship, and that Russell very much wanted Johnson to be able to to be the dominee of the Democratic Party in 1960, uh, and to, he wanted uh, Russell very more very much wanted a, a southerner uh, in the White House. Uh, so uh, that 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 relationship. Uh, led to the passage of uh, the 1957 Civil Rights Act. In, in addition to a number of things that happened that year, I talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, um, in which uh, it's the emergence of uh, Martin Luther King as the leader of the Civil Rights Movement, um, the, uh, and Rosa Parks the, uh, the refusing to, to give her proceed on the, uh, on the bus, um, and uh, the story of a uh, young man, Emmett Teal, who was brutally murdered in the in this house. All of that happened, and, and all of those were sort of pivotal events, uh, coupled with uh, the Johnson and Russell relationship. So, uh, again, it's a fascinating story. In the 1937 Civil Rights Act itself, uh, really didn't uh, do a lot in terms of improving the conditions of blacks in the South or elsewhere, uh, but it, it set a president. It was sort of a, a watershed moment in which uh, civil rights legislation that had been blocked by a few senators from southern states for more than 80 years was finally passed. And, and, um, and it, 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 let, it made possible the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64 and the Voting Rights Act in 65 that really did make a difference. You say some people will tell you that Washington is the problem and that less Washington does, does it better. And you say don't believe them. No, uh, I think if you read these stories, uh, one of the things that you'll you will you will develop a greater appreciation uh, for is the real difference uh, that uh, uh, that legislation like this uh, can have in changing the lives of, of Americans. Uh, you know, uh, in a famous there's a famous story in which uh, uh, one of his favorite speeches, um, Ronald Reagan said that. Uh, the federal government was a monkey on people's backs, and uh, he, he, meaning that uh, the federal government always got in the way, um, and that it should be dramatically reduced in size. Well, you know, uh, Reagan was really wrong about that. It was a wrong analogy. The federal government is like this big dog, you know, and it's a very big dog. And when your rights are threatened or someone is trying to do you or your family wrong, you want that big dog on your side. And I think it, when you when you go through the book and you read the the story of the passage of the pure food and drug laws, for example, and um, the 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 um, what the conditions were at the time, 
uh, in terms of uh, tainted food and and drugs that were either ineffective or unsafe um, that led to the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act or the Meat um, Food Meat Inspection Act. Um, that you develop an appreciation of why we need something like the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, if you um, read the stories of the uh, conditions in the South prior to the passage of the Civil Rights Act, um, that you will develop a great appreciation of why we need that big dog, the big federal government, to protect the rights of individuals. So I, I think you'll come away with a greater appreciation uh, that uh, that federal government can do a lot of good. The title of the book, Getting Things Done in Washington, Lessons for Progressives from Landmark Legislation. And the author is Dr. Joseph H. Boyette. Dr. Boyette, tell us how to get your book. Okay, you can uh, get the book from uh, online from uh, Amazon.com, from uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, so, uh, and you can order it directly from my universe. Thank you, Dr. Boyette, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Okay, thank you, Stan. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.